Let us pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, in holy baptism, you began your good work in our catechumens. You have blessed their instruction and training in your word. We implore you to pour out your Holy Spirit on their hearts and minds so that they will truly love and revere you, confess the faith with joy and boldness, endeavor to live according to your commandments, and praise and glorify you as their faithful God and Lord. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. All right, a couple of reminders from last time. If you, didn't, if you didn't grab a catechism, if you don't have a catechism for your household, who needs a catechism? You didn't grab one last time? Everybody's got it good on cate- catechisms? Uh, we're going we to work through today. I need like a, I need a co- official coffee podium thing. <laughs> a plant stand. Yeah, that's what I... Well, next week. I've got two things. I'm going to get... Where's Raditz? He chose, he chose Schumacher over me? I texted him going, hey, it's time. He's like, just started. I'm like... <laughs> He's under the impression that, that I'm more lenient than Schumacher. <laughs> Raditz, you can hear me. <laughs> I'm going to pass out these cards again even though they've proven to be ineffective last week. And if I could get, can you help me out here? Pass those guys out. Today we're gonna get into some fun stuff on baptism. Now I I got, so this past week I was in St. Louis visiting family. And um, since my my kiddos were occupado with the in-laws, I got to spend too much time on this handout. So for better or for worse. If you've ever been to my Bible studies before, you'll, you'll know that I'm probably not gonna get off the first page and we'll save the rest for later. A couple quick questions on our housekeeping type stuff. I record these, um, I put it on the website. I forgot to email it to you guys this week. I'll have Beth email it out this coming week. So. I record it here on my, on my phone, upload it to the church website. So if you go to the church website under audio um, or resources, there's like audio and video, and then the most recent, all the sermons and Bible studies are on there. And they, you can subscribe to the podcast and they'll automatically go to your podcast if you wanna do it that way. Um, so you can listen, especially for those of you, I know this is hard to commit to so many weeks in a row. So if you're traveling, you got, you got competing things on your schedule, um, you can listen to the audio. Today, we're going to talk about church, <laughs> uh, where Jesus gives life to the dead. So our worship, as I mentioned last week, our structure for this... Uh, yes, question. Do you have another one? Yeah. Thank you. Oh, that one was better. <laughs> um, When, so the structure for this, this class is kind of following our worship together. So first to kind of talk about what is the point in worship. And we, as we think about worship in, in your church experience, which obviously you walk in the front doors, there's lots of stuff going on at Bethany. But the idea is the main thing is happening here in this room and everything else that we're about uh, flows out of it. Not that it's secondary or less important or something like that, but that, that it flows from it. They're connected. But we have to have we start the starting place clear, and we have to know why we're here and what we're about. And also, interestingly, it's not even about this space. We, well, what, what defines our purpose for being together on Sunday morning can be done without walls. But since we're in a situation where we're not being persecuted, as uh, Mary was telling me some of her relatives uh, are being in Pakistan, um, since we're not being persecuted and don't need to hide for our, in our worship yet, uh, we can have the luxury of building a, a, a building and, and uh, having a roof over our head for worship. So we could do it though, um, if, we, if push came to shove, we could meet anywhere, we could meet in somebody's basement. But eventually, I mean, if you, have you entertained like you have people over, I'm sure your family's kind of like mine, like 
things aren't in total disarray, um, but when people are coming over, you clean up. But when people stay over, you have to clean up all the time. And if they're coming over all the time, you're cleaning up all the time, this is too much pressure. It's easier to just, let's all put our money together and buy, build a church. And that way we're not having the congregation over to your basement every weekend, right? Uh, so the primary purpose for, for what the, what's happening in worship is, let me maybe start with, uh, it is divine service. So as you see on your handout there, worship is divine, that is God, serving us. So we're starting this direction with him doing the action. He's the doer, we're the receiver. Now, from that very basic starting point, it changes everything that we do in this space. Uh, it changes the, the, the way we order the service. Have you, know, have you ever, like, I grew up um, half Baptist. My mom's still Southern Baptist, um, but she's a practicing Lutheran. It doesn't make any logical sense, but... Um, she, I grew up going to Southern Baptist uh, school in high school, and a lot of most of my friends were Southern Baptists, so I got really good in their theology and understanding their worship. And it was always this, this uh, energetic thing. When you walk into um, a, a, a service where the point of worship is clearly different, it's the, the music is trying to hit you to kind of get your emotions up. And so it's kind of, it's, a, it's an upper. Whereas we walk in the room and right away we say, I'm a poor, miserable sinner. <laughs> like, that's kind of a downer. Well, my point isn't to artificially lift you up. My, my, the point is for the Lord to rebuild you from scratch. But before he rebuilds you, he's gonna tear you down to nothing. So we confess our sin, our nothingness. And he does all the killing with his law and remaking, he makes us alive with his, with his gospel. So you could, you, you could think about the, the Christian worship experience as first and foremost, passive. Think Ezekiel in the Valley of Dry Bones, where you've got, remember the Ezekiel's there, it's, he's in front of this like, imagine there had been like a war, this battle scene that had taken place like 10 years prior and all the dead bodies were left out in the desert to just slowly decompose and now there's just like bones. And Ezekiel standing there, and God says, hey, prophesy to the bones. And bones come together, then they grow sinews and tendons and flesh. And then he speaks life to the bones, and breath enters the bone, and they become living soldiers. Those bones did nothing. But the, the voice of the Lord, through his prophet, brought life to the bones. And that's, so it's a, it's a wonderful thing to be reminded that the Lord, what the Lord is doing to us through his, through his divine service to us and worship is convicting us of our sin and bringing, a, bringing new life to us. So from a service planning perspective, I don't need, I'm not trying to manipulate anything. I'm not trying to, I'm never gonna drink this coffee, why did I bring it in here? just getting heavy. Uh, I, I'm not trying to convince you of anything. So that's which we'd find in, in uh, decision theology. So some churches practice that where you'll, uh, the, the quest is to have you make a decision for Jesus and accept Jesus into your heart. And if you've already done that, then the goal is to have you recommit your life to Christ, which we actually are, we, there's a similar component to how we view confession and absolution. We recognize the sin of our past, week, day, morning, year, whatever, and we're confessing that to God, and he's forgiving us and giving us new life. But that's what Jesus instituted. But the, the decision theologians replaced that with this rededicating my life to Christ, recognizing my failures and then my desire to improve. But then the church service is trying to convince you to Make that commitment to fix yourself, to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, tighten your shoes, get it together, let's go. So it's very law, it's law heavy in the sense that it's trying to equip you with the information that you need to live better. Uh, but that's about you doing and not you receiving. The, um, I mean, that, that's, the, the other one would be like academic, 
So like you're coming to church wanting to simply be uh, academically fed, which isn't bad. I mean, hopefully we do grow academically in the Lord's Word as we study it throughout our lives. But um, the primary goal is not academic because what the Lord is doing to the Valley of Dry Bones, He is doing to the baby who is not even listening to me right now. There he is. Uh, so the, this, is, this is what I mean, tr- the tremendous comfort of what the Lord is doing through his spoken word, even to babies in utero. Because the, what God is doing through his word is, this, is on the spiritual level, as well as obviously a physical level too, and, and, and there's academic components. But if you go to... Um, if you, if, you, if you go to your evangelical brother-in-law's church or something like this, the, the, you'll come to church with some fun music, and then there's a mass exodus. We have to get certain things out of the room so that we can really get into business. What do we need to get out of the room? Children. We need to get the kids out of the room. Why? So we, because we need to focus and hear. And what do we have to do? This is a total side note, so help me remember to get back where I was, but... When you send the kids out of the room, they need to be entertained. So we have to come up with fun things for them to do. And so now the kids have to, they start to associate Sunday morning with what? Entertainment. The the point of Sunday is for you to entertain me. The, The church stuff, the stuff that happens in there, that's boring. That's for mom and dad, that's adult boring stuff. So we've, we've taken a whole generation of kids and trained them to think that worship is about me being entertained and then why we, it's interesting that we see this morphing of, of church services where congregations say the whole purpose of church is to be entertained. So we change the music for entertainment. Well, that, remember going back to where I was, the, the academic goal of church. So you, you'll notice our sermons are hopefully quick. They might feel long and painful, but they are hopefully. Uh, I, I shoot for, I went through an, a phase where I was trying to preach eight to 10 minute sermons and, um, but then I found that the delivery, like people tended to listen better when I was more conversational, which meant me getting off script like I'm doing now and ranting for five, seven minutes. Next thing you know, your sermon is 25 minutes long. Well, then the service gets long. And so we're tr- we try to keep our sermons under 15 minutes. If you'll notice in your bulletin, we, we try to keep the hymns We'll eliminate certain stanzas, which ticks off a lot of the musicians. And if it's your favorite hymn in there, we chopped out two of your stanzas. You're going to talk to me about it. I'm trying to keep everybody happy. But the goal is we're shooting for one hour. We don't even pass the offering plates anymore. That's super nice. I despise that. Because look how long these pews are. Imagine, like, they're trying to pass the plates down the pews. And then we got to have ushers. And half the ushers didn't show. And if you're in communion, like, if you ever sat over here for communion, and you got to walk around the world to get down here to the front and then back to your spot. So communion takes a while, offering takes a while. So, but still, with all the different things we're cramming into that one hour, the goal is to get out in approximately an hour. The sermon, though, is only a very, very small percentage of it. It's 10 to 15 minutes because the goal is not an academic increase. Again, it's nice if we have some learning but I can't do justice to the Lord's text. We have Bible study for that, which I encourage you all to go to. I'm starting a new Bible study tomorrow. Uh, it's not new, I'm continuing. I've been, ta- I've been teaching on Luke now for three years. I might actually finish soon, but I'm not making any promises. Luke 21, we're, getting, we're, we're entering Holy Week, so now we're gonna cross resurrection. So it's actually the, the, the best part of Luke, arguably. But I'll, we study the scriptures in depth, verse by verse in there. That's not the purpose for this space. Church is about something different. It includes the intellectual component, but it is not limited to that. It's, it's hitting those with, with severe physical handicap, retardation, infants, the elderly with dementia. So the Lord is working through his means in spite of our physicality, which include your inability to pay attention because of the, my children sitting in front of you fighting about a pencil distracting you, the Lord's still giving us gifts. And now, uh, to, uh, this is my, my classic, this is like the Pastor Klimmer picture that it's on here. So uh, the purpose of church is, we'd say, to deliver the forgiveness of sins. 
Now that forgiveness of sins is like the big Lutheran cliche. Forgiveness of sins. We kind of include, we have to know what sin is. I have to know what forgiveness is. But the idea is, um, wait a second. Jesus, I thought Jesus died on the cross to forgive my sins. Is that true? Did Jesus die on the cross to forgive my sins? Hopefully, otherwise all those billboards across the state of Missouri that say Jesus saves are lying, right? Jesus saves everywhere you go. Uh, so if Jesus saves and it's just done by dying, then why, why would we talk about forgiveness happening in the service? I thought forgiveness happened on the cross, you see? And so uh, what, so it's not academic. It's not, it's not a mystical or emotional manipulation that's happening here. It's not a community building thing like you find in the Mormon church where we're just getting together and sharing our feelings. Um, but it's, it is the Lord who has died on the cross to forgive our sins. No matter how many times I get new markers, children find my markers and play with them all week long and they're dead by the time I get here. Um, so the Lord Jesus died on the cross, but you know that, that old Linton hymn, were you there when, when they nailed him to the tree? Were you there when they nailed him? Famously sung by 96-year-old women who have the <laughs> I just described my entire first congregation. Lovely, lovely ladies, but man, that song. Um, uh, we weren't there when they nailed him to the tree. So think about this, the guys who na actually nailed Jesus into the cross and had his blood spraying at him, and when, when they were like giving him the, the whip and ripping out his flesh and blood is flying over them, they are literally covered in the blood of Jesus and yet that blood did them no good, see? So to be at the cross is one thing, but here we are, <laughs> you kidding me Smalls? There we go. Here's us 2,000 years later. So how do I get the cross from year 33 AD to me today? Right? So the, 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 the forgiveness of sins, this is, this is classic Luther, especially in his Galatians commentary, when he helped make this distinction for the purpose of understanding worship. The forgiveness of sins is one on the cross, but it is not delivered there. It is delivered, well, wherever Jesus wants it delivered and however Jesus wants it delivered. It's not up to me, it's not up to the church on earth. Jesus has chosen to deliver the cross in particular ways. And a picture that I, an image I used to, to teach this would be if you go to like, I'm usually teaching it to children. So if you're going to Target uh, to buy mom a Christmas present and you've got your $10 that you've saved up and you're buying mom a pair of earrings that she'll wear once and then throw away probably. Uh, but you buy the, you get the earrings, you take them through the counter, the lady runs it through the thing, she boop, you know, runs it in the thing and then tells you it's gonna be $9.95. She takes it, she gives you the change and the receipt. She puts it in a bag, she hands it to you. Gift one. Has it, have the earrings done mom any good? No, they still have to be delivered. So while the gift is one on the cross, forgiveness of sins, life and salvation, destruction of the devil, eternal life, is won by Jesus on the cross. It is delivered through primarily the main thing, one might even say the only thing, is his word. And so, uh, the, as Romans, Romans uh, 10 famously says, how are they to believe if they have not heard? So, I mean, that's like, that's, it, all news functions that way. Like think World War II guys who are trapped behind enemy lines in, in a POW camp or something, and the war is over, but they haven't been told. And then someone, someone shares the news, so they hear it on the radio on the, one of the guards that the, the war is over. Now that news changes me, but it doesn't do me any good. I haven't, even though I'm still behind the gate, 
even though I'm still a prisoner and they're still abusing me and everything, that having the knowledge that the war is over changes me just by hearing it. So the Lord delivers his cross first and foremost through the word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. So God, just like the valley of dry bones, speak life to the bones. Then also the Lord takes his word and his wisdom and he attaches it to physical things. Well, the word itself is physical. This is a weird thing. I mean, I, this is, I, I didn't really like put this together until later in, in ministry. But how do drums work? Do drums work when they're just sitting there? What makes a drum work? You have to hit it. It has to be struck. Well, what is the primary mechanism in your head that allows you to hear me? A drum which means it has to be struck with physical things that you can't see, but they are still there. That's why high-pitched screaming of my two-year-old when, when Everly's taking her toy away, you hear a and a pitch and glass shatters all over the house. So it causes it to, to so it is physical. So the Lord's working through that physical thing, but also any physical thing. So. So Jesus, he takes his word, he attaches it to water. And he, and he says, do this for the forgiveness of sins. I, by this water and word, I'm promising my presence to you. We talked about that last week, and we're gonna go over his name more hopefully today. He also takes his word, he attaches it to bread and wine and the Lord's Supper. So we call both uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper, we call them sacraments. So you often, you often hear the cliche, word and sacraments, and different church bodies, especially like the Catholics, have different numberings of what is a sacrament. Um, but the, the difference, like for the Catholics, for example, if you're familiar with that, they have, they have different definition of what a sacrament is. So it's helpful to kind of know that we're, what we're talking about is a physical thing that, that, that Jesus, the Lord Jesus instituted uh, so he's promised to deliver the forgiveness of sins in this physical thing. Jesus instituted it. It's physical. It delivers the cross to me. It uses God's word. So these are all the components for we, just in our practice of the word, defini the, the definition of sacraments. It's a scary word if you're coming out of Catholicism or if you've grown up to despise everything that smells Catholic. Uh, the word sacrament is simply a translation of uh, mysterium, from uh, the Latin mysterium, as St. Paul describes pastors as stewards of the mysteries of God. Uh, that is stewards passing over that which does not belong to me, taking care of that which does not belong to me, but is for me to dole out. So pastors as the stewards of the mysteries, and that's that translation into sacramentum. So mysterium is the Greek into Latin sacramentum, into English sacrament. So we talk about word and sacraments, don't be intimidated by that. We're simply talking about the physical stuff that Jesus attached forgiveness to, and it's limited to font and altar. Lord's Supper, baptism. Also, you can, you can consider confession and absolution a sacrament as well. Catholics um, and Lutherans alike, we rejoice in the proclamation of the forgiveness of sins. It's physical in a way, you've got the pastor, we'll talk about the office of the ministry later. But also, again, that was spoken word. So, I mean, think about that. When the pastor says to you, I forgive you all your sins, it's not that I have some magical skill, I assure you that I do not, and it, nor that I'm especially powerful or something, but it's a, it's a language of office. So, so like when, when you've got a couple little kids who are fighting over something and, and, and you say, tell your sister to, to, come, to, to come talk to me, and the older sister says, go talk to mom. The little sister says, no, who are you? But when the older sister says, mom said to go talk to her, then there's the head down and the dragging her feet all the way to mom, but she's going. The being in the office, being set in the position to speak for another carries with it authority. So that's the office of the ministry that actually does what it says. So when the pastor stands up here, in case you ever wonder what the pastor said, doesn't say, your sins are forgiven as a statement of declaring a reality. It's actually doing something. Just as God said to Ezekiel, speak to the bones. 
God is saying to his pastor, forgive the sins. So it doesn't say as Seth Klimmer, but as a called and ordained servant of Christ, I forgive you all of your sins. And you know, you know, I don't feel any different. I don't look any different. I still can remember my sins. And yet God says my sins are forgiven, and so they are. Thanks be to God. So if you look at your, your very cleverly drawn, I learned how to use like the, the Mac word pad and, and draw. To me, I had, there was a smiley face, doggone it. Where this arrow is on the right actually had this man, and it must have deleted. Oh, you know what I did? I, I must have clicked back too many times. That's depressing. I was really excited about this picture. Well, you can draw a smiley face man right there if you'd like. That represents the today us. But notice, uh, with forgiveness of sins is delivered to the New Testament church this way. Does that mean that, like, no one gets forgiveness of sins prior to the cross? Well, what do you do with Abraham? What do you do with Adam and Eve. And so I got this picture of happy Adam and Eve, you know, sad Adam and Eve um, from the Old Testament. And then we've got the temple there in the Old Testament. So as we think about Old Testament theology and the way God is, when he's delivering the forgiveness of sins to us and word and sacrament, he's doing nothing different than he's always done. But it's interesting because the cross doesn't happen until, I mean, depending on how you date it, 4,000 years after creation. After creation. But remember, so that Revelation talks about, Hebrews talks about Jesus as the lamb who is slain before the foundation of the world. That doesn't make any sense. How is Jesus the lamb who is slain before the foundation of the world? So this will blow your mind. So I'll, I'll, I'll go, this is too early to go this deep, but C.S. Lewis talks about seeing creation from beginning to end, like being in a hot air balloon and looking down. And at one, at, in one moment, being able to see the whole thing from creation to return all at once. Because he's, you're, you're not, if, if, if you imagine it like a parade where you can see the beginning of the parade and the end of the parade, which always has Santa, So you see, at one point you see both the beginning and the end, and, but the only way to see that is to not be in the parade itself. So Jesus, as God, is outside of the parade. Now he sees within where he's gonna drop himself into our parade to redeem the whole thing. He's gonna drop himself in at the cross point. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. But, He's obviously been around since the beginning, since creation, right? So here's time always moving until the return. Here's creation. So when we get the fall into sin, if this is proportional, the fall into sin at somewhere in that second week, perhaps. So it's like right here, <laughs> put a point. Uh, we get the fall into sin. So how do Adam and Eve get the cross? Remember the, the first gospel, God promising Adam and Eve that the, oh, you want to see it? Flip over to, flip, open your Bible. Genesis. So, so the gospel in a nutshell in the New Testament is John 3.16. Always remember the gospel in a nutshell in the Old Testament is Genesis 3.15. Genesis, so here's the, the curses going towards um, both the, both the, the the promise given to the woman and the, and the curses to the devil. But in 3.15, at the fall into sin, God says, I will put enmity between you, devil, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. So your offspring is, when you look at the Hebrew, your offspring is one of these fun English words that can be singular or plural because we speak English, which God, in speaking through Moses in Genesis 3, does not speak English believe it or not. So the Hebrew is actually pretty clear in its words. So when he talks about the, the offspring of the devil, it's, it's plural, but in the offspring of the woman, it is singular, the seed of the woman. This is the first promise of Jesus, the enmity. So here it goes. And he, singular, shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. The same word, sometimes it's translated crush, bruise, it's the same idea. So I think the crushing is better because when you, when you get your heel crushed, it hurts a lot, I imagine. Unfortunately, I haven't had that done yet. 
but it doesn't kill you. When you get your head crushed, there's no bouncing back from that, right? That's the idea. So the promised, the promised Savior in Genesis 3 that crushes the devil, uh, that crushes Satan's head, is given. The promise is given way back at the fall into sin. But then, notice what happens. Do, 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 do. Fast forward to 22, uh, verse 20, three, uh, chapter 3, verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed, clothed them. Which means they're walking around naked prior to that. You remember that scene, the fall into, the fall into sin. They were, they were created naked, everything is perfect. They, had, they were naked and unashamed, and then they fell into sin. They re realized their nakedness and they were ashamed. So shame. And then they tried to cover themselves, self-justification with fig leaves. And then Jesus, and God, upon finding them in their sin, confronting them in their sin, promising their Savior, then he says, your self-clothes are inadequate. I will do the clothing. So he goes and he kills an animal, takes the skin and clothed, clothes them. Now, last time I checked, it's very, very difficult to get the skin off of an animal and keep the animal alive. Prior to this moment, how much death did we have in the world? Zero. So if you're Adam and Eve, I mean, imagine Adam and Eve, they're playing with, well, I always like to picture Fluffy because like the lamb Fluffy and Fluffy's got this like very clear, like beautiful coat of white fluffiness. But there was like this one like birthmark that Fluffy had, like maybe a black string of uh, hair on one neck or whatever. At night, they cuddle with Fluffy when they're cold. And then uh, God says, your clothes are inadequate. I'm going to clothe you. And so he, he, he goes back into his God closet in the Garden of Eden and he comes back with nice outfit made out of white wool with a black little line on it. And all of a sudden Adam and Eve are like, wait a second, that looks familiar. That was Fluffy. What happened? What'd you do to Fluffy? But that's helpful because think about, think about the pain that we feel when we lose a dog or a cat, an animal, a pet that we hold dearly. There is a pain there. That, that gives us a glimpse of the, the loss that death brings. Uh, so God works through sacrifice in the Old Testament. This was the first sacrifice. They had to kill an animal to clothe Adam and Eve of their sin. So we have the promise of the Savior, the death of an animal, and the forgiveness of sins delivered. Now, all the Old Testament sacrifices then continue to take place. And I've got a picture of the temple. Kind of the, the, the temple is the high point where you see the the, maybe the, the regulations of the sacrifices and all the restrictions and everything like that. All the sacrifices are doing, they're delivering. It's not just anticipatory. It's not that there's, it's not that there's Adam and Eve are back here and Abraham and the temple and all this kind of stuff. Moses over here. So we have, I guess if that's a temple, then Moses would be before. Anyway, you get the idea. It's not like they're saved because they're waiting for the cross. But the, yes, they're waiting for the Messiah. They're waiting for that seed that's gonna crush Satan's head, but God is delivering to them the same forgiveness of sins that he delivers to us. He just does it in a different way. That's what the temple is all about. And that's what the sacrifices were doing. And the sacrifices were all just a picture of what was gonna to happen to Jesus. So we see it kind of ultimately come to a head when Jesus or uh, when John the Baptist points to Jesus, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Calling Jesus a lamb makes no sense. I mean, I mean, if Jesus had like white, fluffy Bob Ross hair, then it would be confusing for us. Maybe he's calling him a lamb of God because he looks like he has lamb hair or some kind of, maybe Jesus talked with a bum when he talked. I mean, just silly. There's no way to interpret this in such a way that makes sense unless you understand the, this Passover lamb of the Old Testament, the sacrifices of the Old Testament. Now, I showed you guys the picture last week on the, on the wall in the back. This was, Mandy gave me this for Christmas a couple years ago from the same artist and you've, you've probably seen a similar thing, but you get the crucifixion of Jesus, which is always gory. We get the, the crushed Satan, the promise from the beginning that he's gonna crush Satan's head. So here's the, the tail of the serpent 
coming out. You can't see the head of it because it's been crushed by the cross. But then coming out of his side is, as John talks about, the blood and water that come out of the side. And the history of the church has always interpreted that to be, in a way, I mean, it, it, was, it wasn't symbolic in its, um, its historical account of what came out of Jesus' side, but they also made this allegorical analogy to it being baptism and the Lord's Supper. So you see the angel catching the blood and the water from the Jesus' side, which is ultimately the things that make up the church. Those things that we can do without walls, right? We don't have to be here to be receiving the Lord's word and his sacraments. That is the church. So what, that's, the, that's how we define it. It's wherever God is doing this stuff. He's called us together in his name. We talked about the disciples that he's made us last week. He's called us together. He's, he's forgiving our sins by delivering these things to us. We take a pause there. Any comments or questions so far? I don't see any orange cards being flashed around. Um, now, that's your, yes, you get coffee. Well, sometimes questions can be embarrassing. Oh, no. Not, but, so if we were in a different setting, you could hand it to me more covertly, but now you all, just, I'm going to pretend like I picked up cards from you and why is decision-based theology so popular and why are so many Lutherans, especially those with contemporary worship services, not able to discern this? Hmm. I think you kind of answered it with 3.2021. Well, so I wouldn't blame, let's, let's take it off of Lutherans who prefer a particular type of worship style and, um, and put it on what, what the scriptures refer to as the old Adam. The sinful flesh wants to fix itself. So it's not just that decision-based theology is popular amongst some people, and within Lutheranism, it infects people with a particular worship style, but decision theology is, is built into our sinful DNA. We want to justify ourselves. We want to pull up ourselves by our own bootstraps. We want to save ourselves. And so we pick up the law to try to fix ourselves. Well, I want to have credit for myself. I want to be, have a part in this. In a way, it makes logical sense, especially as an American. So we have this, we have our, we're a democracy and the work, the, Ameri the Protestant work ethic that we enjoy, you know, like the idea of working hard for something is, is part of our American thinking. And, 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 you know, successful human thinking. And it makes logical sense. That, wait, so I have to choose God. I have to do something. Because the alternative would be him doing everything. And that takes it out of my hands. And that's kind of scary to not be in control. I prefer to be in control. Isn't that kind of what, what the root of like a lot of our sinfulness is that I prefer to be in control. And when I don't have control, it scares me. Um, that's a big piece of it. Now, it is also interesting that you'd point this out. You do have amongst, like within our particular church body, it is particularly um, that, that decision theology can start to be pervasive in, in church bodies that lean contemporary. And I'll just speculate that, well, I'll start with this question. This is, now I have, and now I, I'm more I'm more convinced about the answer before I even. <laughs> the uh, why would why would somebody have contemporary worship when the church has been worshiping a particular way for two thousand years? And why in the last thirty years have we decided that you know what I can do it better? I know those guys died for that particular thing, but nah, we're gonna. Why would someone change the style of worship? What's the goal? They're not. They're obviously not demonic. What's the purpose? Why? So she said to make it more entertaining. That's not the end goal. To be entertained is never the, never the desire of those who are promoting and selling and, and pushing hard for this. Entertainment is a means to an end. What's the end? To get more people in. So if it's a more entertaining experience, 
then I can draw more people in. Because that, with the presupposition there is that the people are being lured. Like, well, this is actually like a fish. It's, it's, a, it's a, to use the fishing analogy, the bait and switch. When Jesus fishes, well, from one perspective, you could say Jesus fishes with a barbed hook. That is, it's hard to shake him uh, when he pulls us into his church. But actually, to use the biblical picture, Jesus doesn't fish with a rod and reel and lures. What's the fi- what, what, is, what is the mechanism in a real way? What's the real way of fishing if you're, if you're Peter? A net. What's rule number one when you go fishing with your boys? What do you tell the kids when we're going fishing? Don't smack the water with your rod. Don't make a bunch of noise. You're trying to be like deceptive. When we're fishing in Colorado, you have to like go in and fly fishing. You're, you're, you're wanting to go uh, downstream so the fish can't smell your scent and you're behind them and you have to throw the lure out in front of them and it comes toward them. They're really deceptive. If you make too much noise or they see you, if the lure, if the lure doesn't look like what they're wanting to eat, they're not going to bite it. So you have to figure them out to deceive them to take the bait. Jesus doesn't fish that way. What does he do? He throws in a gigantic net. It makes a huge splash. He swims around in a circle and grabs whatever's in there, throws out the bat. That's fishing with Jesus. And that has the fish passive, doesn't it? Uh, so it's not, the goal is not to manipulate or attract in some deceiving way, but to simply sow the seed. That's the other analogy of just to simply let it do its thing. And Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. So it's remarkable, like, and even you, many of you guys represent some of these conversations that I've had with folks, like, I've, I've talked to some of you and you're just like, this is, this is the gospel, this is great, this is everything. Like, why is everyone not seeing this? And I'm like, yeah, I know, I know, I'm with you. Why is it that some can perk up at this? And among unbelievers, so I'm talking to like a group of somewhat pagans or something, like it's, a, it's remarkable how some will be extremely antagonistic against the gospel. And some will be like interested in asking questions, right? But still, that's, that's the Lord doing his work through the word. But it's so, if my presupposition is that worship is trying to get people to make a decision to come to be a part of me, then built into, built into that presupposition is decision theology, is it not? So that's my, that's, that's my guess. I'll stick with that. Good question. Yes. I find that pretty ineffective. Like when, when there's a church, like I know most of their songs, but then they bring out the praise team and like people are offended. I'm like, I don't know this song. I'm not part of this. Like, well, so. We don't know it. Like, I try not to get too wrapped up, especially this is early in the class. We're bashing on contemporary worship already, but um, <laughs> I, I honestly don't care. Um, and, and I think. Maybe that's overstating it. I, do, I have a personal preference that if I had to choose, if I wasn't a pastor, I would go to a particular church. I would come here. By the way, like my, it was nice being a senior pastor in a place like you, while you are the bottleneck and you get blamed for everything, for good or bad, um, it, the, the, uh, it's kind of fun to say, if, if I were going to church, I want to go to a particular kind of church. I want Bethany to be the kind of church I want to go to. And I think after eight years, we're, we're, getting, we're getting there. Um, so that's kind of fun, like to make it a fun place where you, we enjoy our life together and we worship, we take our worship very seriously and we do it well, right? But so to the worship point on contemporary worship, I, having grown up Baptist, this is, my, this is actually my, my experience. I grew up in a very liturgical Mississippi church. So I associate Lutheranism with the liturgy. It's just, it was just my experience. I went to Baptist high school. They worshiped in a very different way, contemporary worship. So I associate the worship styles with different theology. Then I went to Concordia, Nebraska, and I played football there. And the, the first, like during two days, the coach made us all go to worship together at the late service, which is always a contemporary. I didn't know it existed. I didn't know there was like another kind. I show up, the opening hymn was the same hymn they were singing in my high school. I was so ticked. I wanted to like go after the pastor. What are you doing? Um, but, that, so I've, but I've come a long way. I've learned. So we don't start there. That's the easiest difference for us to see. But the real differences are much deeper. 
getting to things like what I've just described for you, in fact, with this dead valley of dry bones, the bondage of, Luther called it the bondage of the will, the, uh, the inability of myself to, ch to make a decision for Jesus. That presumes that I am so incapacitated by my sin that I cannot choose him, he must choose me, and everything flows out of that. There's all kinds of practical implications when it comes to music, too. Like, oh, it was great. I, my first church I mentioned earlier was like everybody, the, I was the youngest person, obviously, and like everybody was in their like 80s and above, which is fine. But, you know, they wanted contemporary worship because they wanted young people. So I said, who's going to play the drums? Anybody I pointed to, it was funny. I'd be like, who's going to play the drums? Chuck? Chuck was just like famously old. He like, he'd always like bend over when he walked. Sweetest guy. He's, he's with Jesus now. But I was like, he was my go-to. Who's going to play the drums? Chuck. And everybody laughs. It's a good point. Like, if you want contemporary worship, fine. Who's going to do it? And if you don't do it well, it's going to blow up in your face and things are going to be worse. So I'm going to throw in my chips with what the church has been doing for 2,000 years. And that's where the liturgy comes in. There's a tie. The goal, even with new music, the new arrangements, we aspire toward a timelessness that doesn't bind itself into a particular era, but tries, so we, our hymns come from all, all, all uh, generate, all, all uh, millennia, but um, the desire even in new hymns is to have something that will stand the test of time. And it's ultimately about the content. But worship, the way that we worship does flow out of the way that we believe. Lex orandi, lex credendi, as the saying in Latin goes, the, the law of prayer and, and the law of believing. So the, the way that I believe does impact the way that I worship, and the way that I worship impacts the way that I believe. They are tied together. Good, good points. Um, I, I'd like to maybe move ahead in the handout. So let's, so just at the very quick note at the very bottom, what the Lord's about, and this comes from Acts 2.42. You have to, I put it in there for you to see. When after, just as after Peter's famous Pentecost sermon, 5,000 people joined the church, and then it says, and they devoted themselves to, this describing the, the church in the first century, the early church, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And that does constitute really the church's life together to this day. The apostles' teaching is the scriptures. So we take the apostles, what they were teaching, we put it in a bind, we bound it together, we have the Bible, right? We confess one holy Christian and apostolic church. So I would, I would consider myself and the, the church considers the pastor to be in the apostolic ministry. So that my teaching would be in accord with that of the apostles as taught in the scriptures. Oh, that was a fire alarm for a second. I'm like, no, we're fine. If anything burns down, the, the NPR needs to burn down because I want to redesign that area. But the, so the apostles teaching the fellowship, again, I drew the picture last week, the fellowship around the altar, the fellowship that we are joined together, united together, receiving the Lord's gifts. But then also that fellowship, that fellowship uh, stays with us as we walk out the room. So we are... I mean, it could be a cliche almost, but we talk about the church as a family. Um, I think it's more helpful to use the language of Jesus. He talks about the church as a body. So that the body that has many members is, is accentuating our different gifts and abilities and interests, our, our actual individual uniqueness. But we're all a part of the same body because we have the same head. And, there, and therefore our life together like this morning as you came in, the other men's Bible breakfast was greeting you. Marty's out here cutting down trees. I mean, Dave Browch is making our homebrew. Hey, everybody's so different. Like Linda Fox with the school. If you guys have met Linda, you probably, like Linda's like the most, potentially the most outgoing person and the best salesperson in the world. Um, but I, I, some, some very introverted people, I asked them to do Linda's job and they'd like cry and run away screaming. Uh, <laughs> every, we're all given different gifts, but it, we, in that way we function together well as a body. And that's from that fellowship. The breaking of bread, which is, so Luke who wrote Acts, Luke's always talking about the Lord's Supper as the breaking of bread. So Luke 24, which we'll get to in my Bible study eventually, Luke, when Jesus breaks the bread 
is when he disappears on Easter evening and to the, to the disciples on the road to Emmaus and they see, Je they recognized him in the breaking of the bread, Luke says. So Jesus is making himself known to us in the Lord's Supper, which the church continues, and the prayers. So our prayer together. And that's kind of our, those are the, the main components of our worship. Uh, if you'll flip over to this fun picture. <laughs> now, when you Google roadkill, comma, get well soon, you can find all kinds of fun stuff. What's that? <laughs> yeah, you're, you're morbid. This is a dead raccoon. How dare you? This is fluffy. Now, what's, you see, the problem with the raccoon <laughs> is, well, I mean, what's the, the irony of what the balloon says? Which is like, obviously, the raccoon can't get well. If he could, he would. It's the same with like anybody at the, at the hospital. Like I remember one of my beloved members, David Bodenstab, I mentioned him last week. Um, you know, I think he deeply impacted me as a pastor and as a friend, but he's with Jesus now. I kind of walk with him as he, his last um, months especially. So he was dying of cancer in the nursing homes around here and uh, next to his bed, somebody, some well-meaning friend, he brought him a card. He was on hospice, he had cancer, he'd gone over his body, I mean, he was, he was, he was, it was just a matter of time. The card said, get well soon. I'm like, <laughs> I'm looking at that card next to his bed, like, I don't think this friend understood what's really happening with Dave. If Dave could make himself better, he would, right? Like when you tell a sad person, cheer up, put on a happy face. That doesn't make, saying cheer up doesn't cheer you up. You have to be cheered up. Telling your kids, this is my, a great one. Telling your kids, like when, if you have a kid who's afraid of the dark, to just not be afraid, it doesn't work. Just don't, don't fear. You have to actually walk into the room, turn on the light, look under the bed and say, look, there's nothing under the bed. Or I'm gonna be standing outside the room. I'm, I'm right here. So you cannot be afraid, right? So you, take, you have to deal with the problem. And so it is, here's our life as a Christian. We are dead roadkill. The Greek, the Greek is nekros. I think nekros. Rotting, stinking roadkill. The dead can't make themselves well. They must be given life by another. Now we're going to get moving here. Got like five minutes. I want to cover a couple of these Bible verses. Ephesians 2. And you were dead, nekros, the dead raccoon. Roadkill, reeking in the trespasses and sins in which he once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of power in the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So it just describes in a lot of different ways the same thing. I mean, by nature, children of wrath, following the, the passions of the flesh, living, like following the spirit who's not working the word, the devil. All these are descriptions of our death that we have. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, not doing anything for him, not proving ourselves worthy, not, uh, not even asking for it, because we're dead made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ. He takes the dead, those who are dead, and makes them alive. There's nothing that we do, he does it all. And same with that's, that's the worship, that's bringing life into our death. Our problem is, in our sin, very often, we start to think that we're alive on our own without him. If I'm alive, I don't need him. So it's the reality of our death, both our actual physical death, and by the way, every time you get a cold, like I had last week, every time you have a boo-boo, as my children get, every time, this is all death breaking in, having these like pre-shots 
of death that we experience finally in our, in our actual death. But prior to that, we are being hit by death. As, as Psalm 23 famously says, I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Now that's a beautiful picture too, which I'm gonna run out of time. Now I'm gonna do it. Quick, Psalm 23. Uh, if you're walking, if you ever been in the mountains before, I've been in Colorado is where my first parish was. And uh, it's up on top of these mountains and yet surrounded by mountains are beautiful, but it's weird because it's on top of the mountain, you have mountains kind of all around you. It's an annoying place to live because the sun is only like, it's only bright a small percentage of the day because the mountains hiding behind, or the sun's hiding behind the mountains for a long, long time over here. And then you have the bright day and then it's starting to hide behind this mountain over here. So it's like a small amount of time that you get the sun. So that's what it is to be in a valley. It's like there's, there's always these shadows that you're in if you're in a valley. And so I'm walking through this valley. Now, if I'm walking through the valley in the shadow of death, I'm, I'm seeing the shadows, but what's causing the shadows? The mountains, which are big and scary, and the mountains are, in Psalm 23, the mountains are what? If the valley if the, is the shadows of death, then the mountains are death itself, that surround me on all sides, casting a shadow on what would be otherwise a beautiful valley with the water running through and the trout, the flowers, right? The beautiful walk and walking through this wonderful valley. I'm in the shadow of death. That means everywhere I look, what the, the, is brought dimness by death, the reality of death. And some of the sad pictures of that would be like, every time my children have a birthday. If you ever want to, if those of you have children, you're like, wouldn't it be nice to freeze time? Like this moment, like when my daughter, Annabelle lost her first tooth, and she just a big toothless smile, daddy, look. It's like so cute and so happy and then immediately sad because now I know she's growing up and she's gonna be attacked by all the things of the world because I can't freeze time. I can't stop it, it's moving along, right? So even our greatest joys are dimmed by the reality of the shadow of death in which we live. And yet we, need not, we fear no evil because thou art with me, says Psalm 23. Uh, I am with you always to the end of the age, we talked about last week, but the promise that the Lord gives us in his name. Real quick, Colossians 2, any, any questions real quick? We have two minutes left. I wanna be sure to wrap it up. Uh, we'll finish Colossians and we'll pick up there next week. Colossians 2. In him also you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, so through baptism, you who were dead, necros, raccoon on the side of the road, in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So he brings life into our death by this forgiveness of our sins, taking the sin out of us, taking the death out of us and nailing it to the cross with Jesus. And that is, uh, that is why we worship the way that we do and um, that's the goal, I guess, to, to put a pin in it for this week. The, the goal of our worship is to make, is, is, is Jesus' goal in worship. And that is to make dead things alive. Um, so the sermon if, is, is trying to preach a short message that's applying the, the appointed gospel reading of the day. I'll talk about our readings another day, but the, the appointed reading of the day, taking that message and Reminding, the, reminding you that you are dead, the raccoon on the side of the road, reminding you of the valley of the shadow of death in which we live, reminding us of the need, showing us the x-ray of the broken bone so that he can then make us alive again. So he can bring life into our death, forgiveness for our sins, right? And that's this ongoing repetition in the Christian life. The life of the disciple is the ongoing, the ongoing, uh, hey Ted, Ted Quillitz. I'm almost done, Ted. In fact, we're done. Let's, 
So we'll, we'll, pick up, we'll pick up here. If you want to keep your handouts, fine. If not, just pass them back and we'll, we'll, we'll uh, start with this next time. This is actually a perfect transition because I can talk about uh, the, the way of life and the way of death in the Lord's name for three or four days. So um, this week, if you have any questions that are starting to come up, feel free to email me and I can bring them up to the group, um, write them on the card, whatever. Again, grab donuts and coffee for the road if you'd like. Join us for Bible study tomorrow. I'm really excited. I'm preaching tomorrow. I got Bible study. I got to teach today. This is like I'm in heaven. This is my the most fun thing I ever get to do is teach. So I'm back in the, back in the saddle on the Luke 21. Let us close and we'll pray the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. All right, thanks guys. Have a...